0: So like Melinda said, we are coming to the end of our series on the Lord's Prayer today. And we've been exploring each line of the Lord's Prayer kind of individually over the last five weeks. And I think taking each line individually is important because there's this endless depth and beauty to be explored in each line of the Lord's Prayer. And yet at the same time, it's this pray- prayer that's meant to be prayed as a whole, not to be broken up into individual parts. And so by way of a quick recap. I thought it might be worthwhile, looking at the big picture, zooming out a little bit, uh, and just having a look at the prayer as a whole before we get into this last line. Um, And as as an aside, it feels really weird to use the word zoom in its proper context, to say zooming out, Um, so let's just forget that zoom exists for a bit, we're going to zoom out on the Lord's Prayer, take it as a whole, look at it in the big picture just for a moment. And in particular, there's something that I want us to notice, and that is, The way that the prayer is broken up thematically into two sections. So the first section is this, a quick recap. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first part of this prayer is dominated by the word your in terms of repetition. Yours is the kingdom, your will be done. Um, speaking about God. This first part of the prayer is all about God, his holiness, his will being done, his presence, his reign, his rule being known on the earth. The second part of the prayer goes like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if the first part of the prayer is dominated by the word your, this part's dominated by the words our, and we and us this part of the prayer is about us it's about god's provision for our daily needs the way we forgive and are forgiven and there's a cry or a plea that we not be tempted towards evil and sin but instead are led towards wholeness and flourishing Uh, some of you know this some of you may not i grew up in a different denomination grew up going to a lutheran church and the tradition that i come from you say this prayer corporately every Sunday. It's part of the liturgy. It's just something that you do. So from very young, you get to know this prayer. Something that I've said, I couldn't even tell you how many times in my life. So I've prayed this a lot. I know it pretty well. And I know that when I'm praying this prayer, I may be saying the words us, our, and we out loud, but in my head and my heart, I'm thinking me, my, and I. I'm thinking... Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sins, as I may or may not forgive other people in my life. Lead me not into temptation. Jesus could have said the prayer like that. He could have taught us to pray me, my, and I. He had words for me and my in Aramaic in his language. And yet he's used us, our, and we. He's used community language. So when I pray this prayer, I'm not just concerned with where my next meal is coming from. I'm not just concerned with my personal forgiveness. I'm not just concerned with me having a flourishing life and being led away from the path of evil and temptation. I'm praying this for you. I'm praying this for our community, for our neighborhood, for our city, and for the world. And it's not just me praying this prayer, we are praying this prayer because this prayer is intended to be prayed together, to give us shared language and a shared voice in order to praise God and to pray for our world. And so this prayer gives us a shared voice in our posture towards God and our posture towards others. And I find it really interesting, you may not, but I do, the way that this maps on or matches up with the greatest commandment. So Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies by saying, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything. To love God with your heart and your soul and your body and your mind. He says, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So love God, prioritize his will, his kingdom, his holiness, and seek it with everything that you have. And love others. Be concerned with your own, not just with your own provision, your own forgiveness, your own flourishing, but with your neighbors as well. And this is what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We are praying the greatest commandment or greatest commandment. We're declaring that it is all about God and it's all about how we live in flourishing community life together. And I want you to hold on to that thought. This is going to be really important for where we land today. I'm going to come full circle and come back to that idea at the end. Uh, but for now, we come to this final line of the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you want to, uh, and you've got a Bible or a device, open up to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is where you'll find the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Um, And while you do that, I'm going to tell you a fun fact that you may not know about the Lord's Prayer. And that is that this line, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever. Amen. Is not in most Translations of the Bible. So, if you open up to a modern translation of the Bible, anything other than the New King James, King James, or the Message, you will not find this line. Instead, you'll probably find a footnote. Or if you're on your U Version Bible app, you'll find that little like bubble with the three dots in it, and you can click on that. What you'll find in a Bible is a footnote that says something like this: It'll say, "Some late manuscripts for yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever, Amen." So, this is not original to the prayer. Jesus most probably didn't say it. Um, all of our earliest and best manuscripts of Matthew and Luke, which are the two gospels we find the Lord's Prayer, don't have this line in it. Uh, so what do we do with that? Why would we preach a sermon on a footnote in the Bible? Uh, it's a really good question to ask. There is this whole field of biblical study called textual criticism and I promise not to bore you with it now. It's better suited for a Bible college class than it is a sermon. It's not the most interesting stuff. Um, But if you do want to understand a little bit more later about how it's come to be in the King James or New King James, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. I'm sure Melinda could as well. Um, But having said that, How this last phrase, the yours is the kingdom, power and glory came to be included in the Lord's prayer is actually pretty interesting. And I think it tells us something about how the prayer was intended to be used. So from pretty early on in the life of the church, most people believe from 50 to 75 years after Pentecost. So early on in the life of the church, this prayer, the Lord's prayer became a daily practice. People would pray it three times a day, morning, morning, afternoon and evening uh, which is quite a lot and then at some point the early church decided okay if we're going to be praying this prayer every day three times a day and we're going to be using the prayer in our corporate sunday gatherings we should probably end on something that's a little bit more worshipful and uplifting than deliver us from evil which is kind of a downer way to end a prayer And so they've decided that maybe we will incorporate something that's worshipful, something that declares um, who God is and what he's like, instead of ending with deliver us from evil. So this line, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Was adopted as a response to the prayer or a way of rounding it off. Uh, But I don't want you to freak out that it's not in the Bible um, because it is biblically based. It has biblical roots. So I'm going to jump back to a book of the Bible that you may not be very familiar with. Um, I'm certainly not. It's my least read book of the Bible, and that is 1 Chronicles. Um, I just don't find it very interesting. I know I'm not supposed to say that um, about a book of the Bible. But anyway, this is a prayer of David's from 1 Chronicles, 29, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 13. And I want you to listen to this prayer of David's and tell me if the language sounds familiar. So David prays. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your name. Pretty familiar language. These prayers have so many key words in common that it's almost like the last line of the Lord's prayer is a summary of David's prayer in 1 Chronicles. Uh, I think it's a really appropriate way to end the prayer, so they may not have been Jesus' words, uh, but this is about how the prayer has come to be part of the practice and daily life of the early church and how it has continued to be a statement of faith and belief for the church ever since then. So I think this line is definitely worth praying um, and it's worth giving some consideration this morning. So that's what we're going to do. Now, if you were to hear the words kingdom, power and glory in the context of the first century Roman Empire, which is when the early church would have been praying this, you would have thought of one person and it wasn't Jesus. You would have been thinking of the emperor of Rome, the ruler of the known world. He was the guy in charge. He was the one with all power, all glory, and the kingdom was his, even if he had to tell you it was. And they regularly did. The guys who were in charge of Rome regularly said of themselves, I'm wonderful, I have all the power, I have all the glory, the kingdom is mine. So the declaration of the early church that the kingdom, power, and glory belong to God and not to the leader of the Roman Empire or to anyone else was actually quite a dangerous statement to make. It was a political statement. They were praying that God would show himself in Jesus to be the true ruler of the world. And I would say that 2,000 years later, not much has changed. This is something that we need to wrestle with as Christians because there are a lot of leaders in our world who are trying to establish their own kingdoms are trying to establish their own power and their own glory and hold on to it with everything they've got. And the church around the world, and us included, are still making this crazy, bold claim that God is the one in charge, that he is the true ruler over all that is. And this is why we'll often talk about what it means to live in the world under authority of the people who are governing the country in which we live. And yet at the same time that we believe God's kingdom is here and now and that our ultimate allegiance is to Him. So saying, "Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory," is still a political, subversive, countercultural statement to make in our day. It's also a really significant theological statement to make. We are naming who God is, what He is like and what he's on about. And so I think it's worth spending a few minutes just looking closely at each of these words that we pray when we say, yours is the kingdom, power and glory. uh, The significance of praying them, the response that they call for and what they invite us to do. So the first, yours is the kingdom. If you've been around Richmond for a while, this should be familiar language to you. You may even laugh at me as I say, King Jesus and kingdom uh, because it's part of our buzzword list. Praying yours is the kingdom is the declaration of God's rule and reign in the world. We talk about it as being a kingdom of flourishing, of wholeness and beauty and restored relationship where everything is made right. And this is the kingdom that was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. He said about himself, the time has come, the kingdom has drawn near in my presence. We now live in this really weird time between when Jesus came and kind of established the kingdom and when we'll see the final fulfillment, the complete overlap of heaven and earth. And we're still waiting for that day, but we're called to live today in light of then, in light of the day when the kingdom will be fully present on earth. So yours is the kingdom is not a future statement. It's a here and now reality that we can live out of. And so I want to ask the question, how do we respond to that? I think praying yours is the kingdom reminds us that this life and this thing that we're doing is not all about us, that we're not here to build our own little kingdoms, but that God has invited us to participate in the building of his kingdom and all that that means. If this is God's kingdom and he has invited us, as he has, to co-rule and co-create with him, then we need to ask ourselves, how are we working to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven today? So that's yours as the kingdom. And then we come to yours as the power. Power is a word we understand, I think. This is the declaration that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he is all powerful over all things. Uh, and if we need proof of God's power, we only need to look to some of the stories in the Bible. This is the same God who spoke a few words and the entire universe came into existence. That's pretty powerful. This is the same God and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and defeated the the powers of sin and death. This is the God that can move mountains and walk on water and uh, heal people. Uh, This is the God that can do more than we can ask or imagine. So when we say yours is the power, this is what we mean. But what's really interesting to me, as someone who's fascinated by leadership and by power, could just be a personality thing, but I'm always interested in power. Uh, What's really interesting to me is the way that this power is wielded or the way that it's used. Jesus explicitly says to his disciples that this movement he's starting is not going to use power the way the rulers of the world use power. He says, Jesus says to the disciples, Those um, who are regarded as rulers and leaders in our world will lord it over you. The rulers and leaders of our world will exercise their power and their authority over you. He says, not with us. That's not the way we are going to do it. That's not the kingdom way. He says, if you want to be the most powerful and the greatest in the kingdom, serve other people. Serve others. And Jesus himself demonstrates this absolutely beautifully. Uh, One of my favourite stories in John 13. John 13, uh, the disciples are meeting together to have a meal. And John's recorded this really interesting detail. It says, "'Knowing that he had all power and authority, Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robes, got down on his hands and knees, and washed the disciples' feet.'" I've always wondered why that detail is in there. "'Knowing that he had all power and authority, Jesus took the position of a servant.'" And washed the disciples feet so when we declare yours is the power we aren't speaking to a power hungry ruler who will abuse their authority we're speaking to a king who used his power to love and to serve others and ultimately gave up his life this is the kind of powerful leader that i can get behind it's the kind of powerful leader that i can follow that i can trust with providing for my needs and that will lead me towards flourishing and whole life. And so I think the only way that we can respond to the phrase, yours is the kingdom, is to adopt a posture of surrender, which I don't think is a particularly comfortable posture. Um, I don't like giving up control. And yet God is all powerful and uses his power in a way that loves and serves others. And so I feel like even though he is all powerful, he's safe, a little bit like the quote from CS Lewis the Narnia Chronicles. There is an invitation in this phrase as well, yours is the power, to recognise that any power we have is actually not our own to do what we like with. Jesus said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And Paul said that the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. That's crazy. And it's a gift. We should use the power that we have been given to love and serve others and to empower others the way that Jesus did. So I think that's the invitation of saying yours is the power, to say actually this power is not our own and we're not going to use it in a way that hurts others or harms others, but actually in a way that works towards all people having a flourishing life. Then we come to the declaration that yours is the glory. This is the declaration that God is worthy of all honour and praise. Except glory is one of those words uh, that we sing in worship music all the time, but if someone actually asked you, well, what does glory mean? You'd probably be like, hmm, what what exactly does glory mean? Partly because it's hard to put words to. Uh, Without getting too technical, um, both the Hebrew and the Greek words for glory have this sense of meaning around importance, impressiveness, honor, majesty, fame, the good reputation of God. We're thinking about God's reputation, but that's kind of the sense that glory has. And I think the only logical response to God's glory is worship. To declare the praise of the God who is good and wonderful and majestic, um, full of splendor. In a number of places throughout the Bible, it says that we are created to bring God glory. We're created to bring God glory. And so the invitation of a phrase like yours is the glory is for us to live lives that make God known, that point to him, that bring him honour, that bring him glory. And so that's what the invitation is for us in yours is the glory. But it doesn't stop there. The prayer doesn't stop there. Not only are the kingdom power and glory gods, but they're his forever, for all time. Now, forever doesn't just mean in the future sometime, which I think is what comes to my mind when I pray this prayer, that God's is the kingdom, the power and the glory sometime in the future. And he's only got a little bit of the kingdom and a little bit of the power and a little bit of the glory right now because I can't necessarily see it. But that's not what this prayer is saying. When we say forever, we mean forever, not just a future event. It's like God's has been the power and the kingdom and the glory from the very beginning, from before we existed. And it's been that way every day ever since. And it's that way today. And it's going to be that way every day in the future on into eternity. God's is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever today, not just sometime in the future. It's a here and now reality that God's rule and reign is here, that he is in control, that he is known and that he is worshipped. And as I was thinking about it this week, that's quite a bold faith statement to make. We are saying this is true here and now, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it looks like everything around the world is falling apart, when life is hard, when the world doesn't seem to be flourishing and doesn't even seem to care that God exists. In the midst of all of that, we still say yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. I think it takes a great amount of faith to believe that and to say it. When things don't look the way they should, when life hasn't turned out the way we had hoped or planned, uh, we say it anyway, knowing, or at least hoping, that it's true. And choosing to declare this in the midst of uncertainty and questions and all the feelings that seem to contradict it. I think that's why a prayer like this is so important. Because we've been given language, we've been given words for those days when we aren't sure what's true and what's not anymore. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, uh, but having words in a prayer written like this or in songs that you sing and you say out loud until your head and your heart catch up and actually believe that it's true. Uh, I experience that quite often, and I'll I'll be singing something or I'll be saying something, I'm like, actually, things don't look like that at the moment. I don't think I can believe that that's true, but I'm going to sing it in faith, believing that it could be true. Uh, And so I think a prayer like this is really helpful for us because we can declare that God's is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, even on days when it maybe doesn't look like it. Uh, And so a prayer like this gives us language and gives us words for when maybe we don't have our own. And then the prayer ends the way we might expect it to, which is with the word, Amen. Uh, But contrary to popular belief, the word, Amen, doesn't mean the end. It Doesn't mean the end. Uh, Amen means more like, may it be so, or like truth. Uh, It's our declaration. It's our way of expressing that what has been said is what we believe, we agree. Yes, that is the way it is. So saying amen is like saying we agree. This is our prayer too. This is how we choose to live today in faith, believing that it's true that the kingdom, the power and the glory belong to God. I think this is a really significant way to end the Lord's Prayer. I think the early church knew what they were doing by adding this line to the end. These are deeply significant words of worship that require faith to pray day in and day out. And so I imagine the early church uh, praying this prayer, you know, maybe by themselves, morning, afternoon and evening, and then in their corporate um, or like gathered Sunday worship. I imagine praying this prayer had a deep impact on the way the church lived out their faith. These words would have become so ingrained, so a part of their lives, it can't have not changed them. It can't have not shifted their priorities and reminded them to live towards God and towards others, reminding them to declare in faith and speak out the truth of who God is, even when everything around seems to contradict it. And so I wonder if it had such an impact on on the early church as I imagine it would have. What do we do with a prayer like this? The church in the 21st century, Richmond Baptist Church, what do we do with the Lord's Prayer? Because Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Did he mean these exact words? Did he mean something similar? Did he mean that we should say them every time we pray or just some of the times or only when we have a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer? Um, I think we live in a time that is skeptical towards scripted words where authenticity and freedom of expression uh, are highly valued. Add to that that we're a Baptist church and we're unlikely to put this in as liturgy weekly. It's just not how the Baptist church rolls. Uh, So we're not probably going to pray this prayer every week in our gatherings. I mean, neither of those things are necessarily bad, but I do wonder what we lose when we don't pray corporate prayers like this one that have carried the church and the Christian faith throughout the centuries what would it look like if we were to embrace this prayer and to pray it regularly how would it shape our community and the way we live how would it shape our faith and our confidence to know that god's kingdom is has arrived and is arriving and can be built here on earth as it is in heaven how would it help us in remembering to pray pray for and to care about where our neighbor's next meal is coming from How would it help us remember that God is the one leading us towards flourishing life away from evil and away from sin? Whether we pray these exact words or not, I think the Lord's Prayer keeps calling us to love and worship God, to love and care for our neighbor and to long for the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Are these the things that we are praying about regularly? If not, Perhaps this is a good challenge or reminder to get back into the practice of praying about who God is, praying for our community, our world, our neighbours, and longing and praying for and crying out for God's kingdom to be realised on earth as it is in heaven. So whether we're praying the prayer as it is or putting it in our own words, how do we take hold of this practice that Jesus has invited us to? I'm going to leave you with that question. I want you to continue pondering how this might have a place in your prayer practice. Uh, But as um, we finish this series um, each week, we've had a practice at the end. um, And it seemed fitting today that we would do something not very Baptist, uh, but something that has been part of the tradition of the church since the beginning. And that is to speak the Lord's Prayer out loud together. Um, Speaking out loud together and having shared language and shared voice is really powerful. Um, And after we do that, we're going to sing together again um, and continue to respond to and declare that God is the one who is all-powerful, that he is the one who is all-glorious, and that he is working to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, We're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. It's going to be up on the screen, Um, and I'm going to also look at the screen so I get the words right. So let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen